How then do these women, bereft and broken and grieving as they were, begin to experience the goodness and the kindness of the living God? And the answer proceeds really in two ways. The first is through meeting a righteous man who becomes this benefactor or provider to them. And you see how this seems to just happen almost by chance. We're told at the beginning of chapter 2 that when Ruth is sent out to go glean, it says she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. But the power of his kindness begins to melt the bitter heart of Naomi. And she says, you can see how she's beginning to feel praise emerge in her heart again to the God that she loves and worships. So that in chapter 2, verse 20, she says, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This woman who's returned home and said, Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Is suddenly experiencing a revival and renewal of her spiritual state and vigor because of the kindness of God through the agency of one man. And I want to remind you, friends, the living God will show us kindness in all kinds of ways, but almost invariably, he does it through the mediation of individuals. Or to put it another way, God uses you to be his hands and feet to express his loving kindness to others. We receive it at first ourselves. This is the grace of the gospel. But grace is never to be contained in ourselves. It's always to give birth to and to result in acts of kindness. And you see how just such, something so simple as generosity begins to turn the story for these women. But it doesn't stop there. What we're going to have time to think about in the coming weeks is the next part of the story of the narrative, which is that there now arises the possibility of, these, of Ruth, the daughter-in-law, be, being remarried, having been widowed, and of the possibility of marriage coming back into the picture. Now, to understand what's happening in this story, you have to reckon with the fact. We cannot think about this through the lens of 21st century conception of marital love which is almost exclusively about erotic attraction that gives birth to commitment and friendship. But in, in, the, in the time in which they lived, marriage was about so much more. It was about the very fabric of society and your ability to function and exist within society as a whole. So for Ruth and Naomi, this is about security, financial security. It's about protection from assault. It's about the possibility of a future and a legacy and the ability to pass down the inheritance that had come down to them through the family line. It's about so much more. It's about their ability to function even within a world in which marriage is at the very core. I want, in the coming weeks, I want us to sit with this for a while. There are a number of sort of subterranean themes that are going on in this story that clash and contradict very directly the assumptions that we've absorbed around love and marriage in the world in which we live. And I want us to sit with them for a little while. The reason being that when you think about the way the Bible and the way God wants to change us, this is how it works. This is how I understand it. 
We have to understand, first of all, that Satan's work is always to corrupt the good gifts of God. Satan has never created a thing. All he does is take God's good gifts and then twist and corrupt them and, and damage them. And so you can think of many, any example in life, anything good and, and worthy of enjoyment, anything that's come from God. Let's think about food. I like to talk about food. You know this about me. Food is a good gift from the living God. And food, and yet, when it's twisted, it becomes the occasion for greed, and it can become a disordered desire in which it becomes a problem in people's lives. Or you think about work, another great gift from God. Work preceded the fall. It's part of our design and function as humans to work, to be productive for the glory of God. And yet, because of the distorting work of Satan in the world and the effects of sin, work becomes the occasion for pride, for ambition, for self-aggrandizement, for clambering over one another, for enriching ourselves at the expense of others, for all kinds of ill consequences that come out of Satan's work. And we could go on and on and talk about just about anything in this world and say, at its heart, at its origin, there is so much good in this world, but every, every good gift has been corrupted. And if there's one area in which, in which I think this is most obviously true in the day and age in which we live, in our particular moment in history... It is in the area of love, and romantic love, and of marriage. I'm not sure that there is any other area in which Satan has more successfully and damagingly distorted God's good gift. So what we need then is to experience the renewal of mind and imagination so that we can begin to think rightly again. The scriptures talk about the renewing work of the Holy Spirit on the life of God's people, so that he's at work in our hearts to reorder our thinking and our affections, but also of the washing of water with the word, says in Ephesians 5. God's word is given to us to reform the way we think, and some of that comes through direct commands and instructions, but a lot of it comes through stories like this. And as we sit in stories, we begin to imagine in new ways. Stories have a potency about them to shape the, what we love and what we hate and to form the way we think. And a story like this can reform us when it comes to this area of love and marriage. And that's why I want to sit here over the next two or three weeks. I want to begin by asking the question, why marriage? And reckon with the fact that here in this particular passage, there are a number of as I put it, subterranean reasons that are going on behind the surface in terms of the big why of marriage that actually run counter to a lot of the assumptions that you've absorbed. And hopefully next week, God willing, we'll think a little bit more about in depth about how marriage functions and the ways in which we see uh, some of the interactions of this man and this woman and how that also challenges us. I'm very aware as I open up the subject, however, that... We're coming with all kinds of experiences. We're coming with shame, many of us. You may be coming with the reality of long-term voluntary or involuntary singleness and uh, perhaps no, no real prospect of ever being married. Um, there are those among us who've been divorced and maybe uh, there's an illegitimacy to remarrying or there's those who have same-sex attraction and therefore you've, you've had to sit with and contemplate um, the, the reality that you may never marry. And I'm conscious of all this. And I just want to say to you at the outset, listen, we're part of a community. 
When you come to church and listen to the teaching of God's word, some of it will apply very directly to your life and your next steps that lie out in front of you. But much of it are about forming you as a disciple and the way you think and feel. And that then equips you to be a blessing to the body of Christ because we all disciple one another every time we make contact with each other. And I'd also say, and what I think and hope we will see through this book in the coming weeks as it unfolds before us, is that really this book is a beautiful shadow of the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his bride that is the church. Boaz, in a way, is a type of Christ, a redeemer who comes in to rescue his bride. So whatever our unique personal stories might be around love and relationships and marriage, we're all, we believe in Jesus, we're part of this bigger story, and this story will cause your heart to worship. So as I said, I want to begin by asking the question of why. Why marriage? And right at the outset, the first thing I want to say about this is that Christians need to hold as the top priority that marriage, in a sense, is an act of obedience because God has invested within marriage purposes and designs that are part of his grand will. Okay, if I can point, phrase that a little bit more pointedly, the, reasons, the reason that ought to be the most fundamental reason that drives you towards marriage as a Christian is in order to obey and please the Lord. Now, I'm conscious immediately that that is counter to everything that you've seen, heard, and absorbed living in the world in which we live. We live in a day and an age in which personal fulfillment is the highest motivator of action. Do what makes you happy. And so within that, we've, we've bought into the idea that desire is king. Whatever you want, you must pursue for the good of your own self. And of course, this has now, desire has so read its head so as to kill all other considerations and factors and particularly to obliterate any moral framework. And no, nowhere is this more obvious than this area of love and marriage and relationships. So that in this particular realm, desire has killed and pushed back every barrier and almost every taboo around this, this part of our lives. What I'm doing right at the outset here is trying to remind you, friends, that long before you had desires in this area of your life, God had designed marriage for purposes that are bigger than just your personal desires. Am I calling you back to a form of marriage that perhaps is, was characteristic in history, which was marked by a cold, dutiful, sort of grim determination just to do the right thing? The answer is no, absolutely not. You'll be relieved at that. When you open the scriptures, what you discover is the celebration of erotic love that exists within marriage. There's a book right in the middle of your Bible called The Song of Solomon, which is so graphic in its depictions and its poetry around, around romantic and erotic love that young Jewish boys, as they would read in synagogue, were forbidden from reading it until they reached a certain age. And we haven't read it with our kids just yet. What I'm trying to help you to see is that 
we live in a reductionistic age in which all the, the, the big answers and the purposes and the grand designs around marriage have been stripped away and all we've been left with is just one strand, desire. And this forms a very thin and fragile foundation for building relationships. You can think about the structure of a rope. What makes a rope almost impossible to break when you apply tension to it is that it is woven from many, many strands. But if you pluck away at the strands and are left with only one, which is what has happened in our day and age around this area of relationships, you're left only with desire, then it's no wonder, is it, that we see so many relationships uh, falling apart with no other reason to sustain them or strengthen them beyond how long that sense of erotic desire exists and lingers. Where then does obedience come into marriage? Where does, do the purposes of God come into your thinking when you think about the possibility of pursuing marriage or doing marriage better if you're already in it? I'm not suggesting to you, friends, that by associating marriage with obedience, I'm not trying to suggest to you that we have a simplistic one-in-one connection between the experience of just you know, listening to the voice of God and marrying whoever God tells you to marry. Like you're walking down the street one day and suddenly you hear the booming voice of God, she's the one. And then you, whether you like her or not, you've got to, you've got to, buy, you've got to obey, right? That was a genuine fear of mine when I was in my early teens. I was earnest for the Lord. And I had a, sometimes it, I feel petrified. What if he tells me to marry someone who I'm not attracted to? And it was a genuine fear of mine. I'm not trying to push us in that direction. I'm not trying to, to move us in a kind of super spiritual direction where, you know, often this, this becomes a problem when I'm talking to people who clearly shouldn't be together. And then they say, well, the Lord told us that we should be. I think, absolutely not. Listen to me and to everyone around you. Um, they, we all can see what you can't see. I'm not trying to put myself above God, please here in context. What I'm really trying to do then, I'm not trying to get it down to something simplistic as that. What I rather want you to understand, friends, is that we have to have a theological vision for marriage. And really that exists at a couple of levels. At the first level, it exists as a universal why for the, why God created this, this institution, this relationship. And this takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis and the institution of marriage at the outset. The universal reasons that apply everywhere to everyone who's walking in obedience to God are the the reality of companionship in mission. God made marriage so that a man and woman would come alongside each other to pursue God's purposes in their lives and bring about the kingdom of God through their rule in the sphere that God's given them. Marriage was created for procreation, for for bearing children wherever that's possible. So that Christians ought to pursue that, if at all possible. And marriage was created to give us a window into the love that Christ has for his people, the church. These are universal reasons. But God's will, his sovereign will, is not just about the broad brush instructions that apply to everyone everywhere. His will comes right down to the level of the individual. Remember what Christ says about you. He says that the Father knows the number of hairs on your head. And one of the things that strikes me is the first thing that really hits me as I read the book of Ruth 
is the way in which you see the divine hand, the divine matchmaker at work in the narrative here, bringing this man and this woman alongside each other and leading them towards marriage. I read to you that verse at the beginning of chapter 2, how it said that when Ruth went out to glean in the field after the reapers, it says she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And no one who reads the Bible and has an appreciation for biblical literature will think that what he's appealing to there is mere chance or coincidence. Absolutely not. He's appealing to the reality of God's sovereign hand at work in the very details of our lives. This is what takes Naomi back when she discovers where Ruth has been gleaning. And she says in chapter 2, verse 20, as she's just learned whose field she was in, she says, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And this is why when Naomi begins to give instruction to Ruth and say, listen, this is how you're going to win this man's heart. And she gives the instructions at the beginning of chapter three. Ruth's immediate reply is, all that you say, I will do. In other words, Ruth is offering her life as an act of obedience, not just to Naomi, but to the God that they both worship. She's saying, I want to walk in the purposes of God, which for her in this unique situation means marrying this man. Now, friends, I feel that this has to be the first thing that we establish. The marriage is about God's will because our world makes everything about me. Everything about you. And the Christian is not a Christian unless the first thing you do in coming to know Jesus is surrender yourself to his will. A Christian is someone who takes on their lips the name Lord when you're speaking to and referring to Jesus. You're saying, you are Lord over my life. And therefore, your purposes for which you created marriage are a primary concern to me. And your will about my specific path is a primary concern to me. I want to walk in your will. Of course, this means in very practical terms, friends, there's a negative thing here. There are people you can't marry. You can't marry someone who's outside the faith. You shouldn't marry someone who's not spiritually compatible with you in that way. How can you build a life on a different foundation from someone else? It means positively that when the Lord brings you alongside the right person, even if everything inside you is screaming with fear around the issue of commitment, you do it. And you experience the grace and the blessing of God in moving into the marriage relationship. Why marriage? Well, first and foremost, marriage is an act of obedience to the purposes, the will of a sovereign God in our lives. It certainly was for Ruth and Boaz. Let me tell you a second thing in answer to this question, why marriage? Marriage is given to fulfill your God-given desires. I've already made reference to desire, but I think we need to focus on this more carefully how do we think about desire as Christians living in a hyper-sexualized age? We're living in a day and an age in which you can barely walk down the street without being assaulted with sexualization everywhere. And our minds and hearts have been so profoundly formed and shaped by this that it has reformed our expectations and the way we think about love relationships. You ask me the question, well, how, how should we 
put desire in its place in a hypersexualized age. I think the first thing we have to do as Christians is step back for a moment and just begin to observe the fruit of what has happened in the world in which we live over the last 70 years or so since the onset of the sexual revolution. What I see is profound damage that trickles down to the lives of many individuals who have been broken by the lies that surround this whole area of sex and sexual desire. These ideas around so-called liberty were concocted among elites and then a society bought into these things and began to push down boundaries and barriers and the safety barriers that were designed to contain sex within a safe uh, context of covenant love and marriage. As these things were pushed down, the unintended consequences have spilled out into, into culture at large and into countless individuals. And I think about fatherlessness. Fatherlessness is a consequence of a world in which so many, have, so many men are unwilling to make commitments and bear with those, remain with those who they are responsible for. I think about the tragedy of loneliness and childlessness for so many Because why? Well, it seems obvious to me that as soon as sex was liberated from responsibility, so-called liberated, men have been the major beneficiaries of this. Because men will happily take without giving and have been doing so ever since. So So long as sex is free, without commitment and without responsibility, they will do it. And what this has left is many people without possibility of entering into a long-term committed relationship and bearing children, as so often your body may be crying to do. You think about also what has emerged in recent years with the dizzying, sickening levels of sexual abuse that have been just below the surface, invisible to our eyes, but are now bursting out as woman after woman says me too. So beneath the kind of glitzy message of sexual liberation is a rottenness and a darkness and a brokenness that has affected so many lives. And it seems to me that as we've begun to reckon with, and we have only just touched the surface, as we've begun to reckon with the consequences of sex that is untethered from commitment and from covenant love, what we are beginning to witness is the snake eating its own tail. That we have sold the lie of of sex without strings and now that it gives birth to all of this kind of abusiveness and, and, and taking what's not yours. And I think the worst is yet to come. When you hear stories of the young generation coming through who are basically raised with their imaginations fed by pornography to expect the things that they see on the screen and the way in which this is now damaging people in untold ways. And so it seems to me that as Christians, what we have to know how to do is put desire back in its right place. 
Unfortunately, I don't think Christians have always been very good at this. And we've tended to veer off in two equally damaging directions. The one direction is the direction of fear as a response to the, the hypersexualized age. And what I mean there is that Christians have wanted to sort of batten down the hatches and apply extra rules and, and restrictions in order to protect our children. But very often, that reaction, a reaction of fear, can lead to the idea that sex is somehow dirty when it isn't. Or it can lead to a rebellion against all these rules. And one of the things that we're seeing, you know, I grew up in the generation that was affected by the purity movement, which I think was well-intended and right at its core aims, but was, was a little bit clumsy. And now what we're seeing with people who are around my age is a massive reaction to that wanting to stray into sexual licentiousness because they're saying, well, you took away my, my teenage years and all the fun I could have had. And so fear has been one reaction, but the other one has been just as bad that the church has, many sections of the church have wandered into a kind of um, anything goes capitulation to the culture. And they sort of step back and say, well, look, you know, the world has changed. You know, you're not, we're not expected to go back to these archaic ways that we're seeing in scripture, are we? And ultimately, wasn't Jesus all about love anyway? And so what you end up with is pastors and churches that are endorsing just about any and every lifestyle choice in the name of love and actually damaging, actively damaging their people as a result. Now, the scriptures somehow steer a way that is both full of grace to help any of us caught up in shame and the mistakes of our past, but also an uncompromising line on what is God's, God's ethic in this area. God created sex, so he gets to set the rules. And what he says to us is that sex belongs only within marriage, between one man and one woman. And no matter how much we legislate to change that, God alone gets to decide what marriage is and what sex is for. So what's the right way between these two errors that I've been describing to you? And I think it's that as Christians, we need to first and foremost recover something of a holy fear, a holy awe around the preciousness of the gift of sex and of sexual love. And what I mean here is that where I think so much of sex in the modern age has been a cheapening of the act turning it into a merely physical act because we have no spirits and we are not soul creatures. We're just animals. Christian faith rather wants to recover and elevate it as something holy, almost worshipful in the sense that it's been given to, by, to God, by God to us. And so we don't have a low and dirty view of sex. We have a high view. But we also want to put it in its place by recognizing that marital love has to be built on a broader and thicker foundation than just that one strand of sexual desire. And one of the things that I notice as I read this story is how these two, two elements are, are handled so perfectly in the love story of Boaz and Ruth. On the one hand, there is an awareness of sexual attraction. And you hear how Naomi's instructions are to Ruth to wash, therefore, perhaps that was an infrequent practice, I don't know, anoint yourself, you know, put on some perfume, 
Put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And then when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he'll tell you what to do. Now, what's all that that about? I have no idea. (laughs) I have read the commentaries. I don't think anyone really knows. There's there's very speculation. Is it an ancient practice? Is this a way that women could say, look, I'm available in this sense? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. Whatever it was... And whatever's going on here, one thing seems obvious to me, though, that there is something that is gently seductive about this. Boaz finds himself on his threshing floor, the work environment, waking up in the middle of the night, startled because his feet are cold. And there at the foot of his bed is this woman. And so there is an honor of this and an awareness of this sexual attraction as 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 an element that compels them towards marriage. And the Bible says that and shows us that desire should drive us towards marriage. It's what Paul says, if a man burns, he should marry. Don't sit with your temptation and, and, and therefore stumble into sin because you can't control yourself. Paul says, no, just get married for goodness sake. Why do we spend a year, 18 months planning weddings when it just gets more and more and more and more difficult as you're getting closer to the day? Stuff all that, save the money, go and get married next week, and then you won't be living in sin. And Boaz pretty much takes that action. He says, tomorrow. (laughs) He says, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to go and check if it's all right with the other guys. Uh, There's someone else who actually has a primary right to marry you. We'll deal with that tomorrow. And Naomi, when Ruth comes home to tell her about what's happened that night, she says, wait, my daughter. She's a wily old woman, this woman. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. She knew what she was doing. She's a smart lady. Listen to the older ladies in your, in your lives if you're trying to figure out how to find a man. There is this awareness of sexual desire as something that compels them towards marriage, and I've no doubt Boaz is drawn to her in that way. But there's something else going on here as well. If you ask me, what is the primary draw that Boaz experiences towards Ruth and that Ruth experiences towards Boaz? It is, again, this word, chesed, kindness. You remember how when Boaz first takes her under his wing and and makes provision for her to glean in his fields in chapter 2, it says, She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She's overwhelmed with the benevolence and kindness of this man who's just giving out of his generosity. But he is equally overwhelmed at her. And he replies and says to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Do you remember Ruth, in an act of total self-denial, decides to leave the land that she's grown up with in commitment to her mother-in-law and says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And it's so extraordinary is this young woman's devotion to her mother-in-law that news of it has gone through the village like wildfire and they're all aghast at how, what an extraordinary young woman she is. And now again, when she's at Boaz's feet, what does he say to her? 
He says, you've made this last kindness, in other words, the kindness of considering me as your husband, greater than the first in which you committed to your mother-in-law, Naomi, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. The foundation of this relationship then and what is fueling and, stri- and, and drawing them to one another in real desire is kindness. And I will tell you, as a man who's been married nearly 15 years now, kindness is the power that drives and continues to fuel marital love. The Greek New Testament words that describe love, one of them is eros, which is erotic love. Another is agape, which is this sort of kindness or covenant love. And it seems to me that the two types of love interact in the experience of marriage. Eros, in and of itself, cannot survive without agape. And agape becomes the foundation, the fundamental element that fuels and sustains marriage and also then kindles eros. And when you're old and eros is no longer part of your married life, agape will still be there. Sorry to break the news to you, but that's how things go. Why? Because agape is at the heart of a covenant God and the way he loves us. So marriage is given to fulfill your desires. Let me bring you to one last idea here. Marriage is also there to fulfill a need in you. Or to put it another way, to bring you to a wholeness. Now, I'm conscious that in suggesting that, there are two pushbacks against it. One is the the worldly pushback, which says, no, we don't need marriage anymore. And it seems that many people in our day and age want to champion and display their independence and their ability to live alone as as a kind of act of defiance against conformity. Very often it's people who've had a litany of, relationships, of failed relationships in their past and they've given up through despair at ever finding real love and then arrive at a certain age when they say, well, look, I'm happy and I'm single and this is who I am. But really, it's very often just a facade. I'm convinced of that. But there's another pushback here where because we need to rightly reckon with the New Testament teaching that singleness is a calling, a glorious and worthy calling within the Christian faith, then we have to take care in how we depict and speak about marriage. So when I'm speaking here about marriage as something that fulfills a need in you, that brings a wholeness to you, I want to be totally aware and conscious of this teaching in the New Testament around singleness. The reason why I say this, however, is because of the way Naomi addresses Ruth. She says to her in the beginning of chapter 3, my daughter, Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? This word rest speaks of a kind of a wholeness and a security and a settledness. And if you to ask me, how are we to understand this? I think we can understand it at a couple of levels. One level is just recognizing the way their world was structured. And understanding that in that world, the idea of living a fulfilled life as a single woman was almost inconceivable because Ruth did not have protection and financial security 
and the opportunity to bear children and all the things that would have given her a sense of place and knitted her into society. She would have had to almost just beg her way through life in this way. And so we understand that partly this is about wanting to see her settled in a secure home environment, a household, finding a function within that. I recognize that. But I don't think Naomi is just talking about that. I think she's appealing to something deeper within, within us as humans. You remember how the book of Genesis says when God has created Adam that it's not good for the man to be alone. And by implication also, it's not good, therefore, for the woman to be alone. That there can be a sense of exposure for individuals who are not given the grace of singleness. There's a sense of exposure if they don't find themselves in this settled place with this rest that Naomi is speaking about here. I understand that I'm kind of unearthing something of a tension here. How do we resolve this? How do we speak positively about marriage whilst at the same time championing the calling to singleness as a worthy and glorious call within the faith? And I think the answer is that whereas our world wants to turn inwards and ask the question inwardly, what is right for me? How can I be fulfilled? And the answer then comes this plethora of options among which marriage is just one lifestyle choice alongside a whole bunch of other things that you can choose. The Christian faith turns that around and says, how can I live for Christ? And the supreme, almost highest calling as Christians is a calling in which your heart is entirely satisfied by Jesus. I think this is partly why the language of rest here resonates with the promises of Christ at the end of Matthew chapter 11. Naomi says, I want to find rest for you. And what does Jesus say at the end of Matthew chapter 11? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The only way that we can experience total wholeness is through complete satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a sense in which the marriage call can be part of the, of Christ's grace to many of us. That it can bring this healing, that it can bring this wholeness, that it can bring almost a form of salvation to individuals. Now please don't fret, I'm not wandering off into heresy here. What I mean when I use the language of salvation is the original sense of the word, which means healing. And that's something of what is the intent here between what, in what Naomi says. And I'll tell you this as as someone who has now been married to an extraordinary person for what is an increasingly long amount of time. I will tell you that my life has been changed by that experience and that there is a wholeness and a healing that can come through the marriage relationship. It's a, a means of God's grace to you as individuals. And I'm speaking here especially to those of you who are afraid Fearful of commitment, fearful of failing, fearful of choosing the wrong person. Understand that when the Lord is at the center, when you're seeking to honor him in this, marriage is a most precious gift and something that we should continue to prize and champion and cherish as Christians. 
Our world has largely relegated it almost to the periphery as a non-essential, partly by distorting our definitions of what marriage is and then putting it alongside other things like cohabitation as equally on par and polyamory is increasingly on the agenda these days. And I want to call us back and say, no, what is God's way? What you observe when you read this story is that God's hands are all over this situation. We worship the same God today. And I have seen the grace of God in, in working in and through marriages. How a household built upon a foundation of Christ can be an agency of God's kingdom coming in all kinds of ways. People's lives being changed. People being loved and healed and bound up within the context of a household. Children being raised as godly warriors for the kingdom. I feel an urgency to preach these things because our church is majority single. It's an unusual situation. It's an incredible privilege at the same time. May God reform the way we think and feel about these realities. And call us to lives of holiness in which we are devoted entirely to him. And if God calls you to marry, which will be the case for, the, for most of you, may you do so in a way that honors him, that puts his will and purposes at the center of that relationship. In a way that your desire is put within the context of this covenant love and kindness. And may God bless you.